The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Hi, it's wel- welcome everyone. It's nice to see you all there. I'm gonna um, share my screen and talk a little bit about the topic for tonight. All right, so last time, of course, we talked about avoiding evil, and tonight we're going to focus on cultivating good. And it means a lot more than just doing good things in the world, as I'm sure you're well aware. It's about really embracing the good life, embracing a life that is in accordance with Dhamma, so that we can really develop our our mind and our our um, skillful actions, our skillful speech. And this is a, a little snippet from Majjhima Nikaya 46, which talks about uh, four ways of undertaking things. But the part that I felt like was uh, really appropriate, just as a quote to begin with, is the Buddha contrasting the untaught ordinary person, the person who hasn't heard the Dhamma, uh, doesn't have that kind of knowledge and, and that guidance for their life. Um, it says it starts out with one who hasn't seen enlightened beings or noble ones or people practicing, and um, they don't know what practices they should cultivate and foster and which practices they shouldn't cultivate and foster. But the educated noble disciple, so yet the Buddha contrasts, the uneducated ordinary person with a noble disciple in a lot of places in the suttas in his teachings. And he, he says they, they cultivate and foster practices that they should, and they don't cultivate and foster practices that they shouldn't. And when they do so unlikable, undesirable and disagreeable things decrease and likable, desirable and agreeable things increase. And this is a something that I'm I'm gonna invite you to reflect on later. And I know when I think about my own life, I can really see how um, before I met up with the Dhamma, even though I was trying very hard to develop myself, live a good life, be a good person, there were a lot of there was a lot of uncertainty, um, mixed messages. To know what is good to cultivate and what isn't. And it's really the Dhamma that the the Buddha's teachings that have helped me get clear about that. And so I'm just um, starting here, the importance of really being able to hear the Dhamma, how lucky we all are that that's been the case. And then... um, these two readings that I ask you to read first, um, we'll talk about the Sagalika Sutta a little bit. And I just highlighted a couple pieces. If you had a chance to read the Sutta, it's in the long discourses, the Diganakaya. And it's, um, I think, a very sweet interaction. Um, if you've read it, you know this young man is... Um, up early in the morning, having gotten all wet, his hair's all wet. He's bowing to the, prostrating to the four directions. And maybe it's the six direction. I guess it's the six directions. 
You know, when the Buddha asks him about it, he says it's because his father on his deathbed said that he should do this. And so he's doing it. So, you know, it's, it's um, like so many things in our life, I think, that we may be doing without knowing why, or we, we are um, not, not really clear about what the results are. And so, of course, the Buddha uh, gives him some guidance around this, and it's, you can really kind of see that he's, he's speaking, you know, of course, remembering that he's speaking to a young man about how to live life and what to be careful of. So, of course, the first part is very much about what we were covering last time, you know, avoiding the, the pitfalls and the, the unskillful things. And then I pulled out just, just in reflecting on the parts where the Buddha is saying, you know, if you live your life this way, if you, if you gather friends that are really um, good friends, and he divided them into four types, the helper, uh, the friend in good times and bad, the counselor, or the one who guides you towards good things and helps you develop in a good way, and the one who's compassionate. Now, this is the um, translation that I had given you links for, the one to Sutta Central and Bhante Sujato's translation. The translation of Maurice Walsh is also interesting. It's helpful to kind of see both. It might be nice sometime if you have a chance to look at that one published by Wisdom Publishing because they use different language and it gives you a I'm even a fuller sense, I think, of what the Buddha was trying to say in the Pali. And to really, to really think about what, what it means um, to have a good friend, to have good friends, friends that are the same with us, whether we're going through good times or bad times, someone who really wants to help you, um, someone who's really interested in our well-being, someone who's really, you know, takes good care of us when we aren't able to take care of ourselves, those kinds of things. Did anyone, and then, uh, so I, I wanted to put a little, shine a little light on that and also shine a little light on the, when the Buddha talks about the six directions. And of course, some of the descriptions of the way parents, you know, the sort of, um, encouragement of how as a parent we would treat our children and how children would treat their parents um how teachers we would we would have this relationship with our teachers and how we would um, support each other and partners um, and our children our friends and colleagues our workers anyone who works for us whether we're managing in a, in a company they're not really our employees but we are you know, making decisions that affect them um, and spiritual teachers. And, you know, I, I wrote in sustaining relationships because these are all extremely important relationships in our life. And when I take this as a whole and I think about the these descriptions, even though some of them might feel pretty antiquated, you know, and maybe not the things that we would value, um, for instance, with our partners, you know, and we may have very different values now, or just because we're, uh, we have more freedom, I think, uh, beyond our social mores sometimes. But when we think about the, 
the, the purpose or the thought behind it. You know, how do we really cherish each other? And how do we really support each other? And how are we really solid and um, sincere and kind to each other? Even though in these close relationships, there are often a lot of things that are really difficult and hard to work through. And how do we, how do we do that? This is all, these are really where the cultivation of good, you know, it's kind of like where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> this is the, the day-to-day stuff that, that we really can cultivate to make a huge, a huge difference in our lives. And the flip side of it, like with friends, um, to really pay attention to how much time, effort, um, you know, uh, influence we are under around people who really aren't good friends. The Buddha says the translation is sometimes fake friends, the ones who really aren't interested in giving back to us or sharing fairly, you know, being uh, really in um, a, a real cooperative friendship where everyone benefits or the other kinds of things that we read in there, ones who are, you know, totally self-focused. And of course, there can be a lot of different reasons to spend time with people. Sometimes we're in a relationship, a family relationship, or for some other reason, we're doing it to support someone else. But then to know, to not be confused about the kind of relationship it is. And it doesn't mean condemning others, but really being clear about who you spend your time with. So we had a situation recently with, um, you know, someone who was in business and he wanted to help a couple of people and he got them involved in his work. And then he found out that they were um, suffering from addiction problems. They weren't being reliable. They weren't following through on, on promises and they were really taking money from him. And, you know, he's talking to us about it. And I think the impression I sometimes can have is, well, wouldn't Buddhist nuns be just endlessly forgiving and compassionate and try to help everyone? And, and the truth is the Buddha was pretty clear that, you know, there's only so much you can do. You have to be conscientious about that. And that it's not all right to kind of open the way for people to be dishonest and take advantage and be irresponsible. And, you know, he he said a lot of things about just staying away from people who are uh, in terms of friendship. It's different if there's an avenue for really giving them some kind of support that they need. But we have to be careful. We're not just facilitating Um, bad behavior. I remember one of the times before I, early on when I was exposed to the Dhamma and I was spending time in monasteries in Thailand, um, the abbot was away. This was in the International Monastery at Ajahn Chah's and the abbot was away and then he came back. They had some builders working on making a new kitchen for the monastery and he said, he's British, he said, we're going to have to sack the, the builder 
And I thought, whoa, a monk is going to like fire the guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it felt so unkind, you know. And uh, yeah, of course, he, he was not doing the job, you know. <laughs> so it's something that I had to like get realistic about. And it's not just being realistic. It's the bringing together of wisdom along with compassion. And so we have to conclude ourselves in the relationship factor uh, that we are not putting ourselves in harm's way, that we're not um, allowing this kind of, to, you know, being taken advantage of, but we're also still, you know, working with compassion. All right, so I'm going to move on here to Majjhima 8, Effacement. Now, this is a sutta I love and have used myself a lot. And I know that sometimes reading it without um, having any kind of um, explanation can be a little bit hard to understand, maybe. And as I've noted here, there are really five sections. I mean, there's the first section where the Buddha is talking about um, when people are practicing meditation and they have jhanas and they think, oh, I'm practicing effacement. And the Buddha said, no, that's not how you practice effacement. Now, effacement here, the way I take it is a kind of erasing or rubbing away of defilements. You're really rubbing away those unskillful qualities and you're cultivating good qualities in their place. And um, sometimes when we have great meditation, we think that our defilements are, are deteriorating or, you know, we're um, maybe we think we're much more advanced. And then uh, many stories from, from practitioners, monastics, and probably anyone, you, you're off on your own and you have solitude and you're meditating and it's all great. And then you come home or you get back to the monastery and there are all kinds of people around and they're making noise and you're just like unhappy, <laughs> uh, irritated with them. And you realize you're not quite as fully free as you thought. And you know, the Buddha, I think probably there were some, where there were definitely some uh, mendicants in the group who thought they were further along than they were and really kind of um, maybe a little puffed up about that. And and the Buddha wanted to let them know that this is, there is a way to work with our our tendencies that are unskillful and our patterns that are unskillful but it's not going to happen. Meditation, of course, helps. This is not a, um, you know, a talk on not meditating because the Buddha was very clear that we, it's important to be meditating and it helps us, but it's not, it doesn't do the whole job. And so he gives these different steps. And the first one is um, just identifying these ways of practicing effacement based on 44 different kinds of, what do you want to call them, qualities, tendencies. I mean, he's got the Noble Eightfold Path in there, and 
you know, these different elements or um, however we want to describe these. And I always really like the very first one. You know, others will be cruel, but here we will not be cruel. And just that one alone, I feel like, yeah, if we all lived according to that, and every place where we would go, the community around it would be committed to that, we'd have some some real benefits from it. And of course, he goes through the other 43 things as well. And, you know, each one we can look at and we can ask ourselves, do I have this tendency? Do I have this tendency towards irritability or envy? Um, could I stand doing some some uh, reflection and work on, you know, speech, right speech, you know, meaning, uh, you know, truthful, not malicious, not divisive, not frivolous, you know, <laughs> that's always an important one for everyone. But it goes, it goes through those um, precepts, but it also goes through many other characteristics or qualities of our mind and our, and our attitudes and our patterns. And, you know, working with something like anger, working with something like irritability, working with something like, um, you know, um, being arrogant, self-centered. These are really valuable things to recognize we can see that even if it's kind of subtle, it's a way that we um, can really be held back. And so we start with just that identification of these 44. And there could be any number more that we might identify. And you have your hand raised. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, Missing a little context here. Um, so I haven't heard the word effacement before. So that's part of my first question. And you gave a brief comment about that, rubbing away the defilements. And then we have four categories here. Are those four of the 44 or are those? Clubs? No. Okay. So thank you for the question. So effacement can you hear me better now? Maybe, I don't know if you had trouble hearing before. I hope you. No, I didn't have trouble hearing. I'm just have trouble understanding. Yeah. I was just kind of asking everybody because I had forgotten. I had the microphone way over there somewhere. And okay. I just wanted to... Thank you. So um, no. So, okay. So the, the, the title effacement, um, the word in Pali is Saleka. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi actually was probably Venerable Nyanamoli translated it as effacement. And Bhante Sujato translates it as self-effacement. And personally, I like effacement better because this isn't, I mean, in a way it does get to dissolving the sense of self, but it also is just, can be just kind of dissolving or rubbing away um, the defilements. So when you efface something, like you're effacing a statue, you know, you're kind of like destroying the features. And it's like, this is, 
really you're effacing these qualities that are unwholesome or these patterns. These are things that are deeply, deeply kind of ingrained in our minds, in our, this is Sankara that can be very, very, um, you know, well-practiced, you might say, and deep grooves in our, in our um, minds, our habits. And then each of these that I have listed here, we've got the 44 ways to practice effacement. And then, so the Buddha has these five, he goes through these, the same list five times. He has these 44 items that he lists, and then he goes through it again as the inclination. So when the mind inclines, gives rise to this thought, others will be cruel, but here we will not be cruel. So he, he lists it in the first, in the first 40, you know, he lists the 44. And then the next section is the inclination of mind. This is the Sutta effacement, number eight in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. And this first section is about um, the Buddha being approached by a teacher who's asking a question on behalf of, he sees his students needing this guidance. And he taught the Buddha talks about no matter how many attainments in meditation you have, you're not really practicing effacement. So we'll scroll down here and this is how you practice effacement. And he goes through this list. So you think about how these, these are things, others kill living beings, but here we won't do that. And he goes through this whole list of 44, being uncelibate, speaking falsely, speaking maliciously and harshly, gossiping, being covetous, having ill will, wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration, wrong knowledge. So this goes beyond the um, noble eightfold path, wrong deliverance. So these are, these are, you know, you're not really, um, you don't really have the knowledge of, of enlightenment yet. You don't really have deliverance freedom from yet, but you may think you have, but then you, you really are working at being clear and honest about what's actually true with yourself and you're practicing for those things. Then he goes through the, the five hindrances, brings in some more qualities, anger, resentment, being contemptuous and insolent, envious and avaricious, fraudulent, deceitful, obstinate and arrogant, difficult to admonish, hanging out with bad friends. We're not going to do that here. We're going to have good friends. And I, you know, Choosing people who are healthy for us, really good. Being negligent, faithless, shameless. No fear of wrongdoing. Little learning. Being lazy, unmindful, lacking wisdom. Holding tightly to our own views, tenaciously, relinquishing them with difficulty. But that we're not going to do that here. Okay, so those are the 44. And then the next section covers the same 44, but he says, this is the inclination of the mind. So when we want to work with this kind of thing, 
first the it's not enough to just know kind of a list but you really incline your mind towards this and you reflect upon it and so he goes through all 44 again and then the next step is you know seeing what i'm inclined towards so a person given to cruelty has non-cruelty by which to avoid it. So this avoidance or finding the way around and the, the similes helpful, I think, you know, if there's a path that's uneven and there's another path that's smooth, you take the smooth path. Or if there's a place to cross a river or a road, you know, and it's very difficult there. It's maybe again uneven or treacherous in some way, but there's another place that you can go that's really safe and easy to walk over. Then you use that. And so this is the Buddhist method for how we change these things in ourself. And it sounds so simple. It's like, well, what does it mean to use non-cruelty to avoid cruelty. It's that kind of, what does that mean? How does that work? So if a person is has the habit of, you know, killing living beings or being cruel in some other way, then every time they stop themselves and every time they don't do it, it helps them overcome that tendency. And I'm, I imagine you've experienced this in your own life. So the first time I lived in a monastery, it was the first time I was around people who didn't kill, um, you know, insects. And, you know, it was a common practice for me to swat mosquitoes if they sat on your arm, or that was what I was trained to do, you might say, taught. And then to stop myself and just like gently shoo them away or blow on them so they leave or just let them bite you, you know? And, um, you know, this is, this is a way to start to let go of that habit that feels automatic to slap them, to take life. And then it starts to have another impact on the heart and on the mind where you start to, feel more gentle and kind. You have some more compassion developing for other living beings. So he goes through the whole list again. And he, and it's usually the opposite thing, like non-cruelty. So it's interesting, like in the poly, you'll have a word and then the opposite, you just add an A on the front of it. So there's cruelty and then not cruelty. The A negates it. And so you'll have a lot of these things, you know, it's like, and to think about non-cruelty, it's, it's different from kindness or compassion. It's actually just the absence of cruelty. Like you can have, have more neutral feelings and there's still the absence of cruelty. And you're not doing that thing that's cruel. And you're no longer thinking in that way either. So this is purifying our, our, our conduct, but it's also purifying our mind. 
which we'll talk more about next time. So if the person has the urge, who's, who's declared that they're celibate to not, to, to do things that are not uh, in the spirit of celibacy, it doesn't even have to mean that they have sex, but the Buddha even said, if you're celibate, if you're, if you're a man and you're celibate and you're standing by a wall and you're listening to women talking or singing on the other side of the wall, you're not practicing celibacy. You're still like, looking for that kind of interaction or that kind of, um, you know, sensual input. And so even things, something like that, you know, to really work with purifying one's mental and physical conduct. And so just noticing any of these things that we have. And then of course, um, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from gossip. Usually it's just like non-ill will instead of ill will, right view instead of wrong view, and on like that. But you can also, when we practice with this kind of thing, really see what it takes. What do I need to employ to be able to avoid this behavior? Yes, Terry. Yes, thank you. Uh, number 20. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you can elaborate on the, uh, the uh, translation using the word deliverance. Yeah, um, I, th- I think I didn't go. I don't, I'm not going to go. Let's see. Let's see if um, Bhante Sujato, what he's got. We don't have numbers here, but I think we can find out where it is. Right freedom, he uses. I think it's probably Vimuti. Um, And so these two um, kind of added on to the Noble Eightfold Path. So he uses immersion for concentration. So there's our, you know, the the eighth. uh, This is the whole list of what's in. Actually, it's... um, yeah, this is the whole list of what's in the Noble Eightfold Path. And then sometimes in the suttas, this idea of knowledge and freedom or knowledge and deliverance. Um, it's, it's really like there's, there's the knowing um, that kind of stands for the knowing that um, this knowing the way things actually are, um, realizing that. And there can be some other steps sometimes in between, but then freedom from the defilements. Even if it's a temporary freedom, it may not be the realization of nirvana fully, but there is a freedom from some level of being caught up in in the world. I think it's probably Vimuti. So here... I don't know if you're used to using um, Sutta Central, but we can change the view. Look at the poly. We can look at it line by line. And then I have to go back and find that area of text where I was looking because it'll be further down. And let's see what the poly word is. Harshly. 
right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, etc. The freedom, yeah, samavimuti. So vimuti, released, emancipated. And you can, so I clicked on it. I have it set so that the diction, the glossary will pop up um, the English translation. And then I can click on Wimuti and I can see what the concise Pali English dictionary says, released, emancipated. And Wimuti is freed, released, intellectually emancipated. So this isn't like the realization of Nibbana, like I said, but it's a, it's a level of freedom from suffering, from being caught up in wrong view, perhaps. So it, and then it, it, Vimuti can be associated with other words like Chitta Vimuti. It's an emancipated heart. Panya Vimuti, emancipated by insight, freed by reason. You can really do some great studying using Sutta Central. Any questions? Did that answer your question, Terry? Okay, great. Yes, Shauna? I don't know if I have a question, but this, um, I have a comment. Um, there, I don't know much about this, but uh, I remember reading about um, the antidotes to anger and, mm-hmm. and other hindrances, and um, this seems to be... Um, Kind of another way of, of um, approaching that. Um, yep. So I, I, that's all I wanted to say. So yeah, yeah, and it's a good observation. And we will, we do see that the Buddha taught so many different ways to approach things, and that it's so valuable because we might be in a different place at a different. Something might hit us at some point that really is helpful or this is a really simple method, right? So it's, um, and it, and it does go farther. I'm going to change our setting here. If I can, let me see. I may have to scroll all the way back up, go back to plain text so we can read better. Let's see, we've got um, contents here we can use. So we've talked about the first um, part about listing the 44 things and then giving the rise rising of the thought about it, really the inclination of the mind, and then the way around it. So using the opposite abstaining from doing this thing, maybe using the opposite approach. And then we're going to go to this part called going up where you're heading upwards because of this work to hold ourselves back from doing things that, you know, uh, are cruel or killing living beings or whatever it is. The very last one where instead of being attached to our own views and holding them tight and refusing to let them go, we, um, you know, really let go or not attached to them and we don't hold them tight and we let them go easily. 
And by doing that, it leads us upwards. So he says the unskillful qualities lead us downwards. The skillful qualities lead us upwards. And this kind of way of thinking about things, is this thing that I'm doing, is this thing that I'm contemplating doing or saying or giving, you know, energy to, thought to, is this um, leading upwards or is this leading downwards? What's the result likely to be? This is helpful. This is actually really um, close to the Pali idea of apamada. Apamada is heedfulness or, you know, real, real care in, in what, we're, what we're undertaking, what we're doing. And, you know, it, it includes a, a, a kind of an anticipation or a reflection on where is this going to go? How's this going to end up? And a lot of times when, especially if we find ourselves in a situation where we're really swept up in the moment or some kind of exhilaration or some kind of strong feeling, we don't think about it. Where is this going to end up? Is anybody going to get hurt, uh, including yourself? And so that's, that's like having this sense that there is this upwards or downwards motion in the in the trajectory we are taking and certainly karmically this this really is is true and so when we're when we're doing this practice you know like if we are really attached to our views for example and we get into arguments with people who have different ways of seeing things you know like really thinking well, where does this lead does this really lead to any resolution or is this just causing bad feelings? Is this really helping anyone see more clearly? You know, and so, you know, really working with our own attachments. And so this is, has this upward motion. And then lo and behold, the fifth, the fifth level or the fifth pass, you might say, is, is really this tendency really going away, like the rubbing away is really complete. Like you're, you're erasing something, you know, how when you've got a strong pencil mark, you have to work at it and it's still there kind of gray. And then you work at it some more and finally it's gone. And the, and the Buddha does warn here that if, if we're sinking in the mud ourselves, we can't really pull someone else out. So we really want to completely erase this tendency and then we can really help someone else from a position of really knowing for sure ourselves. So in this same way, um, we become completely free of these tendencies. And I got to say, I had read this um, sutta a number of times and one time I read it again and I really recognized one of the qualities in my life. And it was when I was taking care of my mom and she was older and that relationship had always been challenging for me. And 
I had been really working on it, but I noticed that I was carrying resentment. And and it was I didn't realize that that's what it was until I was reading the sutta and I was going through these things and looking for where do I have this in my own life, in my own mind? Do I have any of this, any subtle, you know, vestiges of any of these 44 things? And of course, with some of them, there's more work that can be done, right view, right, you know, <laughs> right immersion, right concentration. But it was interesting when I got to resentment and i and i realized that that's what was really lying underneath some of my irritability with my mother a, a feeling and a attitude and sometimes it would you know show up in my tone of voice or whatever I, that i did not want i did not want to say things that were hurtful and she knew me so well she knew if i was you know, even a little negative, but I didn't want that. And then seeing that it was resentment and, and being able to kind of bring it more to the surface for myself, I could really work through these, these steps, really, really seeing when it arises, how to avoid any kind of action on it. And then eventually noticing that it's gone. And this is, it's really inspiring to notice that we really can work with our own tendencies to the point that they disappear, these things. And there's something beautiful in their place. So this is the, this is really the, the sutta and how it works. Any comments or questions at the moment? If not, I think maybe this is a good time for some meditation. And maybe afterwards we can have more discussion. I think our group is fairly small today, so I'm thinking we don't break up into small groups. We just maybe have a conversation as as a big group. And um, and I'll just, you know, we might delve into a few questions about this whole idea of cultivating good. So let's find a comfortable position. It's a lot of words and hopefully some helpful ideas. Breathing in and letting the breath move through your whole body, if that makes sense. We're taking in the air and it's going into our lungs, but it also has that breath energy that can 
really flow through our entire being. And it's the time of day when it might feel like you want to nod off a bit, but we want to also bring in some energy that helps us to stay alert. Relaxed and alert. Such an interesting combination. Mindfulness is established and present. We let go of tension in our physical body to the degree that we can. And let go of mental tension in our minds. One way to cultivate good, of course, is by developing the Brahma Viharas. As we let ourselves relax and let go of whatever has been happening today, we can also invite in a feeling of warmth and kindness. Buddha suggested that we fill our whole body, our being with that kindness, with that metta. One quarter at a time, however that makes sense. I tend to fill the Think of myself as being in a kind of cylinder or having this kind of area around me, starting at my center core of the vertical kind of pole in the middle. And from that one quarter, what is it like to think of that filling with this energy of loving kindness? Maybe it's a very odd concept for you. 
And however you evoke it, that there is this softness, this tenderness, And then filling the next quarter, I go to my right side. This whole quarter of the cylindrical pie. (laughs) And one quarter at the back. And to my left side, so really filling up my whole being and the area all around it with this kind of beautiful, kind energy, unconditional love. It's unconditional, it's not aimed at anything or connected to anything. It's there's nothing to expect from it. Nothing that needs to limit it. And then also imagining it above us and below us. And the sweet orb of kindness. And we have our mind immersed in metta. Then there's all kinds of things that it's not engaged in. Leaving aside all other qualities. A beautiful, contented, pleasant experience of metta. Now, of course, we can have this metta. Related to other living beings. But as we expand out to any of them, we want to do it with that same lack of conditions. Equally 
for all beings, the way the sun shines equally on everyone, good or bad, large or small, young or old. Whatever. I think there is a lot more forgiveness in the Dhamma than we recognize. There's a lot more kindness. In this in this world, in this universe, in the world systems. And sometimes we realize. That's what I think. So when we create this kind of goodness in ourselves, I think we're aligning more fully with the Dhamma. So now I'm going to bring the meditation time to an end. I don't have a bell here with me tonight, but we can begin to prepare ourselves to come back and open our eyes. Thank you. I have a couple of questions for you. I'm going to go back to the slides. I was going to invite people to talk about this in small groups, and you can let me know later if that would have been your preference or not. It really varies among people. Sometimes you start to... Divided into small groups and a quarter of the people just decide to leave because they don't really feel like talking. <laughs> so you could let me know. I'd be happy to take that into account for next time. But in case you find it useful, I'd be happy to hear about anything you practiced this past month, this past month on um, mm, 
not doing um, unskillful things and what the results were. Or the second one here, what are some of the positive changes you've experienced since you picked up the Dhamma as a practice? And this is something I think is really valuable to reflect on from time to time, seeing how different we've become, um, maybe even in small things. So if you have any stories about that, I'd love to hear them. And then the third one is what challenges you expect to face if you go deeper into cultivating the good? I shouldn't say if, as you go deeper into cultivating the good. So any comments? Sharing? Yes, Terry. I, I'll, I'll uh, speak to the first question. Okay. So what, uh, what did you practice this last month and the results? Well, I spent more effort, and I've been doing this for a while, but I spent more effort practicing not bringing my ego along with me when I was driving my car. Because that's where my ego wants to hang out. Mm. And it was great. It was great. It was sometimes it wasn't very challenging and sometimes it was. So that was very nice. Mm. Would you mind telling me if there was anything you did exactly? like? Yes. So while driving my car, if I noticed I started to generate a story about the other driver or drivers, mm-hmm. right? Then I realized, oh, and are the stories ever nice? Do they engage in right thought, right speech, mm-hmm. that kind of thing in my mind? No, they never do. So I thought, oh, that's not going to work out because what's going to happen is it's going to lead me as a practitioner into thinking in ways about these other drivers that are not positive and my thoughts can lead me to actions and I don't want to do that. So I would catch myself starting to create a story, a narrative about this other driver, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I would say to myself, I don't really know anything. Do I, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And not in a negative way, but in a way we're just thinking, Oh, that's okay. I don't need to know. Everything's fine. We're all interconnected. It's going to be fine. So that's sort of, it's not too complicated. It's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you for sharing, Terry. Yeah, we've all heard lots of stories about the road. It's amazing how it gets under our skin. <laughs> driving yeah anthony hi yes uh could you hear me i can hear you okay great um so my question is uh regarding the unwholesome Mm -hmm. Uh, i wanted to know um if if you can uh apply it to the aggregate and how 
how our conditioning kind of like uh, makes it tougher yeah. for because I feel like uh, at times, like I have the, uh, the, not the knowledge, but the understanding of, you know, uh, you know, but somehow I think that uh, subtly my mind gets kind of like where it, kind of like it plays tricks on me mm-hmm. to where I don't see the suffering that is going to be caused uh, in, you know, in the short term, you know, or long term. Both, you know. Yeah. Yes, and I, I mean, I, we see this a lot, of course, in ourselves and in other people. And there was a, a woman who was talking to me on the phone today. She's actually living on the other side of the world. <laughs> so you don't know her. <laughs> um, and she was saying that she's really starting to understand her husband. Um because he's he's a very good person and he really wants to do things in a good way and and um where she lives she feels that a lot of the um in the marriages a lot of times the husbands are very controlling in her culture so here's an an example of you know we learn in our culture how to behave in certain ways and that's encouraged and i've even just as a bit of an aside, I've even seen this like in corporate culture. Like for a while, I worked for a company where the leadership at the top was dishonest to some degree. They would lie to customers and they encouraged that kind of behavior in their in their employees. And it was amazing to me to see how much people working there, how that side of them would come out. And, you know, it's like when we're in an organization, you can feel a kind of um, personality there or in your school that you went to or, you know, whatever. And and we can easily uh, kind of see some aspect of ourself coming out and, and being matching that unless we're really careful and mindful. So she was talking about her husband and he's, he's really um, not that way. He's not controlling and um, dominating in their relationship. Um, But she knows that his father was that way. And she said when he gets tired, stressed, you know, then something will come out. He'll say something and he really tries not to do it. You know, so this is the kind of thing where, you know, um, you know, this is pretty deeply embedded. And even when we want to be different, sometimes it doesn't go that way. And like you said, we're not thinking at that time about the damage it's going to cause, um, the problems it's going to have. Even in our own mind, it's like, oh, man, why did I act like that? I don't like myself when I act like that or something of that nature. And I think it's really helpful to be forgiving of each other, you know, that that she could see that it's under certain conditions and that he um, doesn't do anything really harmful. It's not like he, I mean, I've, I used to um, work on the hotline for battered women's organization. And of course there are horrible things that happen and it's not like you ever want to, 
put yourself in kind of harm's way and see how that's all right. You know, so there are certain things that are just not, not okay. And, and um, we need to get away from them, but uh, if we can, and that's complicated, but in this case, it's not like that. It's more, you know, like a unskillful comment or something. And so, um, yeah, this is definitely what we're dealing with, all of us. And we can even, sometimes something can come up in us that we didn't even realize was there. Maybe some kind of old trauma that is still, you know, kind of um, still lurking or lingering in our in our system. And to recognize that it's okay. It's okay to feel what we feel, get a handle on it as soon as we can, um, backtrack and do the best we can to begin to form a new, a new re- re- response, a new reaction. And to realize that we often have a lot more control than we think, you know, like, um, I might have told this story last month, Ajahn Jayasaro, who's a British monk in um, Thailand. Uh, he was giving a talk about anger to the monastics at the monastery. And he said, you know, you feel like anger is just kind of automatic. It comes up so fast. But he said, actually, there's a moment you do have choice and there's a moment where you go, you decide to go with it. And, just hearing that helped me to have more interest and ability to unpack or bring more space between, you know, feeling something or having the sensory input and then dealing with the feeling that was arising before there would be some response. And so, you know, this is, you know, it really helps to meditate. Um, It helps us to have more control over our mind and slow things down. It helps to have mindfulness as much as we can through the day so that we have, you know, we're aware of what we're feeling, what we're thinking. And then as we practice patterns, like, you know, trying to extract ourselves from the situation so that we can deal with our emotions. Um, One time uh, I knew of a couple where the husband would say, okay, I'm going to step away and I'll be back in 20 minutes. And actually that's a very mature response. You know, you know, you're having these strong feelings and you're about to go some direction you don't want to go and you're going to like, okay. And you could even, even to be able to say, I will be back in 20 minutes. It doesn't leave the other person completely like wondering what's going on. You know, there's some reassurance there and um, you know, we can learn, we can develop these kinds of, of mechanisms, you know, and the more we work with what we feel and then you know, take the time after something goes on that we, we would rather have go differently to really take the time with what it, how it feels, really take the time with letting that emotion appear in the body and working with it as it is presenting itself in the body so that we can um, give it a chance to kind of sift out and, and give ourselves a chance to see that we don't have to be pushed around by such things. We don't have to be 
pushed around by the feeling, we can be present with the feeling and the feeling will go away. It takes some time. You know, if something like anger shows up, there's chemicals flushing through the system. We have to let that all settle. Yes, Anthony. Um, I really, I really like the the the, the five aggregates because it, it it breaks everything. It breaks it down to what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. and my question to you is: when when we get the uh, the willpower or whatnot to you know what what, what you, those uh, what you were uh, discussing earlier, mm-hmm. where in those five a- aggregates do we steer the other way? You know, would it? Because yeah. I know that. Okay, and it depends a little on how we define the the aggregates. So, uh, first, I'll say before I forget that I just did a series on the five aggregates recently, and it's on our YouTube channel for Corona Buddhist Vihara. So you might find it interesting because we had some good discussions. People brought up some interesting points because, you know, like looking at perception, for example. So, so, you know, we have contact. If you look, this is partly coming from the chain of dependent origination, but it's also, you know, observable in all our experience. You know, we hear, see, taste, touch, smell, or think something. And we're making sense of it conscious the sense consciousness is there and immediately there's feeling and we can't stop that part because the feeling just comes up that's old karma that's coming from our conditioning and also perception so i really you know recognize not only are we you know perceiving something then you know there's there's and 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 of course the sense consciousness is there you know making sense of this identifying this thing and the perception is there i don't just think of it only as the simple act of perceiving but i think about and and if you want to toss the patterns that we have the perceptions we have of ourselves the perceptions we have of other people the perceptions we have of someone who's tall, short, fat, thin, black, white, brown, red, whatever. We have perceptions about doctors and lawyers and farmers and cattle drivers and plumbers and whatever. You know, you think of anything and we've got a whole bunch of perceptions around it. You know, someone can have a look on their face and we perceive it as negative or positive or has something related to me or they've got an attitude about me or you know these kinds of things are built up from our experience a lot of it we've learned from watching other people like our parents or whoever was around that we got conditioned some of that conditioning and frankly I am convinced that a lot of it comes from past life experience. We come in with attitudes. We come in with likes and dislikes. We come in with propensities. And so all of that's happening. And we have to begin to be the, the astute observer of all that. 
And the more we reflect upon, you know, why do I have this? Why have, do I have this perception? Is it true? Why am I having this particular story that comes up when I see this other car, that driver, you know, they're driving a Tesla or they're driving a Volkswagen and I've got a different perception, you know, it's like, why, why is that? And what am I doing with it? And, you know, the more we can unpack, like you're seeing, I think, the more we can unpack this. So really whether we put these things in the category of the Kanda of perception or Sankara, I don't know how much practical difference it makes, but it can help us think of these, these are pieces that come together that at that kind of construct a certain reaction, a certain way of thinking and increasing a certain way of feeling. So there's that initial feeling that we don't have the ability to stop because it's already ignited immediately. But then whatever we think brings up more feeling. We can really deepen a felt sense. We can really deepen an anger or affection or whatever by our thinking. So that's the sankara and it, plays into the feeling and then you've got more feeling and you've got more perceptions arising and it kind of snowballs unless we put some gaps in there and really it's you know terry was really describing it earlier too and you know we really put in a wedge of awareness and then you know and some evaluation. This is where the wisdom faculty comes in. Is this leading upwards? Or is this leading downwards? And we can tell by how it feels. If this is opening my heart and making, making more loving kindness arise and compassion, you know, if more wisdom arises of the Dhamma, you know, this is a good direction. But if this is closing me down, making me more afraid, making me more angry or greedy or, you know, um, whatever, confused, we're going in the wrong direction. So, yeah, it's a great way to use the aggregates. But I think in the, in the moment of that, when you, your brain, when your mind gets hijacked, I think it would it would be a, 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 a the lack of awareness right in that moment. Yes, I mean, there's the part that you can't stop, but if you don't have the awareness to catch it where you can, then it's going to just keep rolling. And the the ability to catch it earlier is something we develop. We're developing the sensitivity, the awareness, the ability to slow things down. And then we're able to catch it sooner. We can even, we can even recruit our best friend or our partner to remind us when they see it start happening in a kind way. You can have the code, <laughs> you know, to really support each other. And it's like, 
Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's take a break. Oh yeah. There's all this feeling here. Oh yeah. I mean, do any of you hear your father's voice or your mother's voice coming out of your mouth with some way of talking or, I mean, not to blame the parents for everything because God knows what they went through, but you know, just we, uh, we so, so easily just follow the conditioning we have and we can, we can catch ourselves. Mm. I'm sorry, Ann, did you have anything? Did you have something you wanted to say? So I was going to say something, but I don't know how many hands you have raised or how many other people. Are... I think you're the only one, my dear. Okay, so I, I think it's in the moment. We're talking about that in the moment. So I had an experience today um, where, um, and it, and so I'd have to say um, I picked up a lot of positive changes. Mm. Your second question, but today, um, you know, we're we're downsizing in in this house, and so there was a box that was essentially a drawer out of um, my husband's possessions. And I go, okay, today, this is the day, maybe you can do this. Well, I was watching him do this and I go, this is going nowhere. Is is just pulling things out of this box and putting them on the table. So, and my patience, impatience was rising and I was getting frustrated. And then I thought, okay, he actually doesn't really know. He doesn't have the skills to do this. This is not his forte. His forte is hanging on to things. I mean, that's a little overstatement. So I go, okay, how about if you put, don't don't just take them out of the box and put them on the table. How about if this is recycling, this is trash, this is your treasure box. And I produced this small box for him. And I said, these are for your treasures anyway. It was a successful operation, but I could easily have gone into look. There's nothing there important. Let's just get rid of it. And and I caught myself. And so patience is a quality that I think I have significantly improved on um, with the Dharma. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yes. I think that's I think that's true of me too. I'm much more patient. Um than I was in the past. And yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, when we've been together with someone for a very long time, we have these patterns with, we we have shared Sankara, you know, we've developed this, this whole uh, complex of, of calcified coral that we've got. You know, it's like, this is the way you behave and this is the way I behave and we repeat what isn't necessarily the most constructive pattern. So, you know, yeah. it's find the way out of that and anticipate it. So, yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good on you. That's great. <laughs> we have about four more minutes if anybody wants to ask another question or make a comment or I guess I should also show you what's up for next month. So um, I'm suggesting that you find two items in that list in the Effacement Sutta and really apply it, apply yourself to it. 
And if it's not in there, if they're not in there and you have your own version of one. And I, I noticed that resentment is one of the translations that Venerable Nyanamoli used, but it's not in Bhante Sujato's list. So it also depends on how they translate the Pali. So find the, the word or words that really describes what you want to change and um, see if you can work with it in those sort of five steps or most of the work is in that one where you're avoiding it by the smooth path and seeing what that antidote really is. And so that's the first one. And then increase any other practice that you do this month that cultivates good. And I gave some examples like listening to the Dhamma, listening to Dhamma talks or reading Dhamma books, reading suttas, mm-hmm. active service, maybe increasing your meditation time a little or including a new devotional practice, something that stimulates your, your practice, um, your development of good. And then I've given three sutta references to talk about purification of mind. So that's what we're going to talk about next time, of course, purifying the mind. And there are lots of possibilities in the sutta pitaka, but I picked these three from the Anguttara Nikaya. And if there's any that you find on your own in the suttas that are talking about purification of mind, I'd be happy for you to bring them next time. And we can talk about them. So I think, yes, Anthony. Can you please get that website? You, you mentioned that you had the, the, the Dhamma talks. Yes, the, the suttas are at, let me see if I can, yeah. Um, no, the ones you, you mentioned about the, you, you just recently did about the, uh, the aggregate. Oh, oh, okay. Yes. Not suttacentral.net, but um, it's the Karuna, Karuna Buddhist Vihara um, YouTube. So it's our YouTube channel for Karuna Buddhist Vihara. Yeah. All right. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for your practice and your attention. And I hope you have a really great month. It seems like the months are flying by for me. I don't know how that is for you, but <laughs> before you know it, we'll be here again. <laughs> and, and thank you. Thank you, Rob, for your, all your support and help to create these programs. So take care, everyone.